Hey, good people. This is your N.I. Dom back with another reflection. And this is a personal journal for contemplative people looking to think, grow, and have impact in the world. So, hey, the social eight, the social eight, before you Myers-Briggs people decide to disengage because I'm talking about the Enneagram, the social eight and the Enneagram, just hang in here because... Much of what I'm going to talk about as the social aid can be paired with the INTJ, at least the TE part of the INTJ. But I I think it's going to, um, I think I'm going to deal with some themes around the self um, and what I've called responsible self-acceptance. It's a, it was a, Resolution that I made back in 2009. And I said responsible self-acceptance. And and I've talked about this before, so I don't want to spend my introduction kind of going over this. But the the short end of why that um, that's coming up for me today is because it took, you can't accept something that you cannot confront or you cannot see or something that has no name, no form. You just, it, you can't accept something that in your mind doesn't exist if you don't have an awareness of something. And so I was talking about self-acceptance in a way that I could not get to a place of seeing and understanding. So I was ready to accept the self. I was ready to do the work. But that's all I had. And over, um, what was that, 2009? So we're talking about almost 15 years. Um, it has been a journey of learning the self before I can do some self-acceptance. And so... I think the social eight is about this next level of learning for myself. Um, I would say the other major learning I went through is when I really confronted the NI part of me in the INTJ, the introverted intuitive part of me was a significant growth point for me. Just really coming to terms with that. So I'm here to talk about the social eight in the form of self-acceptance and and I'm going to close out this season. This is the episode 25 of season 6. I think we are officially at 350 episodes now. And uh, we did it. You're going to see this on July 1st, but I am recording this on June 30th, 2023. You're just going to see it as a July 1st episode. It's my second one today. This, the the um, one I did earlier was on solo polyamory, and boy, was I out there telling my business, so check that one out. But hey, if you're new to this project, this is a personal journal, I already said that, um, where I process my inner and my outer worlds, I do so by using personality theory. The two theories that I use the most are the Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram. Pushing those two systems together, I identify as an INTJ8. I also identify as an African-American woman from a lower socioeconomic background and from intergenerational trauma. I'm a trained and practicing educator and social scientist of about 30 years. Half of that time has been in leadership. 
Politically, I lean into tenets of critical race feminism, which means I have an intellectual sensitivity. And boy, I pick it up fast, okay? I have an intellectual sensitivity to social constructs of powers, uh, particularly as relating to race, class, gender, sexuality, just to name a few. This project is unedited and it's unscripted. To know more about it or me, feel free to go to my website at yournidom.wordpress.com. So one of the things, um, this uh, social eight has been on me uh, for about a week. I've been, maybe two weeks, I've been wanting to talk to you about it. And I really couldn't name this as the antisocial, the social antisocial. That was another way I could name it. But, um, and I might end up naming it the, the, the social antisocial because that's really what the social eight is. The social eight is a social antisocial person. And this is so significant to me moving forward um, in my second half of life. And I've been doing some episodes around lifestyle, lifestyle and work, lifestyle and relationships. And um, and I even think we could talk about lifestyle and some of the personal structural dimensions. You hear me use the word structural a lot. And uh, the book that I referenced Three episodes ago, um, Lifestyle and Work, I, the book uh, Pivot and Pursue It really says that when you're trying to reinvent yourself or go to the next level, you really should look at three areas, uh, work, personal, and spiritual. And I haven't gotten into her talking about what does she mean by personal or spiritual, so I can't, I, I feel like I'm talking about this book a lot, but I haven't finished reading it. And so and I can't fully relate to the, those three, although I'm, I, I believe I'm going to be able to connect to them because I've read the first chapter of her book and I really, really connect her, what she's saying um, so far. But I organize my life around four pillars. Um, uh, like I call, well, I'm not going to give the names to them, but they, they, anyway, they're four pillars anyway. And I think that the social eight me is indicative of all four of those areas or all of the three areas for this lady in this book. And what's significant about this reflection today is I need to get to the level of integration with that idea of being a social eight the way I have integrated being an INTJ. So I'm so integrated into the self as an INTJ that I don't, I make, I I make decisions um, because I remind myself, okay, you're an INTJ. These are the things that are important to you. I understand the world through my INTJ lens. I don't fight it anymore. And that's why that when I came to understand myself as an NI Dom, um, which was after I learned myself as an INTJ, by the way, which is really interesting because I didn't come into the Myers-Briggs knowing about those cognitive functions. And a lot of people don't know about the cognitive functions. I remember reading like in a, in a chat room and they were talking about these cognitive functions. I'm like, what? It was like over my head. You know, I was all into the four letter code 
But once you go to those cognitive functions, it really just takes you to a deeper understanding of what that theory really offers you in terms of the self. And so I, with the INTJ me, I just um, very much um, have a sense of peace. That's a better, a good way of saying it. I have a sense of peace with myself because when something comes up and I'm like, oh, that's, that's because of this. I have a framework. Now, for those of you who only use a single theory, you might say, well, why do you need another theory to have peace with the self? And I've, I've talked, I haven't talked about this in about a year, but when I start doing this work under my primary identity, this is the work I want to, this is the contribution I want to make to the INTJ, excuse me, the Myers-Briggs community or the typology community. There is a way that those systems pair up with each other. Now, other people have done it really well. Like there are other, there are other people that kind of use multiple systems and I kind of like how they push them together, but I think I have a unique way that I see, um, those systems really coming together because it is really about understanding the complexity of the human as social beings, right? And because we're social beings and we literally have an inner and an outer world, these systems will privilege one of those domains or the over the other. So a system might really help you to better understand yourself internally. Another system might really help you to understand how you are in the social world. Another system, you know, helps you to understand like how you think, how you feel, what are your motivations? What you know, it's there's just so many things that make us human that there isn't for me. There are things about being an eight that the INTJ just doesn't touch for me. It just doesn't explain. It does not explain it. And there are definite things about being an uh, INTJ that the eight does not explain. So does that mean I have my two the identities off? Like maybe I have the wrong one. Maybe I'm not an INTJ and maybe I'm not an eight. But one of the things I love about the husband and wife team that they do is they say, your best fit. So the same, this is my type. This is the best fit. The INTJ is definitely the best fit for me. Um, I can sometimes question like, oh, am I ENTJ? Just because the TE part of me can be really fierce. But then there's a strong, the FI me is something that is, um, I'm very, I'm getting more comfortable with that in my stack. <laughs> And what it and the implications of being FI. Um, oh God, this is not what I'm supposed to be talking about. I'm, not, I'm supposed to be talking about the social aid, and now I want to talk about the INTJ. But I, I don't want to do. Let me just say this thing, and I'll be done with that. Um, one of the guys that I follow on YouTube, I don't know if it was the academic or INTJ John, and the INTJ academic is Sarah Syke, uh Chris. I don't know his last name. So if you follow that, you'll know who I'm talking about. But I call him the INTJ academic. And um, one of the, those two guys talk about being a user. So I'm a TE user. I'm an FI user. I'm an NI user. I'm an SE user, right? So saying you're a, a user, it does not denote the stack, the ordering of the usage. So that's off. But what I love about it is that that function is there. And it's not there a little bit. 
It's just proportionately different to each other because of the stat. But um, they're doing fireworks outside. and Anyway, so we're going to be a little distracting. You hear them going off in the background. So anyway, um, so there's that. So anyway, that's not why I got on the record button. Because it's the last episode, y'all. Yeah, I got to close it out. But um, so there are times when, the, like I said, the TE is me strong. The FI user part of me is becoming more pronounced. So that that I have to make space for that function to be there, the FI. The SE, right? And I've never really struggled with the SE because it's not, um, I just haven't struggled with it. It's an interesting thing. And sometimes because I haven't struggled with it, then I'm like, okay, maybe it's third and not fourth. Because if it's third, then I'm an ENTJ. But I really think, <laughs> I don't want to, I really don't want to go there. Um, because I don't question INTJ. I think what I'm questioning is how we, how I am here in the typology community we really, really, really don't respect those other functions that are outside of the top two. We're not really respecting like that. Like you have, like some people say, like they're in the back seat. They're there. They're, they're incidental. No, they're not. It's not incidental. They have a a function and they have a prominent place. Um, they it just doesn't override those functions in the top two, but they are not to be ignored. They are not to be ignored. And I have had to wrestle with that lesson on repeat. I have, I've wrestled with that, wrestle with that lesson on repeat, particularly tertiary FI, because I try to make decisions that are purely objective. And, um, that's where I, that's what I value. That's what I privilege. And then I put myself in situations that are woefully against my deepest values, but because I don't make, like, I'm not like walking around like, oh, my values, I'm getting more comfortable doing that. But, and then I, no, and the reason why I'm getting more comfortable with recognizing my values, because it sucks. It sucks when I put myself in a situation that's in deep conflict with those values. And it's just sucks. <laughs> I don't know another way to say it. And so I don't like that. And so I try to do better with that. Anyway, so that's the INTJ me. I just have really come to terms with that. And even if I, this this past season, I played around with looking at the ENTJ uh, part of me, just because sometimes that TE can be so fierce. I'm like, what is that? And, um, but and I have been thinking about the J and the um, the J-ness, you know, um, I did an episode on the J effect and go check. I haven't listened to that one in a while, but I remember it was just really good because like what the implications of the J is about that outer world. So I don't care how introverted you are when you're around other people that that J means that that extroverted trait in you will show up. Isn't that interesting? I love that theory. That is just genius to me, putting that together. Because that's exactly true. I'm an introvert, but when I'm around people, um, the J part of me shows up or I, or I withdraw. But if I'm going to engage, mm-mm. And so, anyway, 
Anyway, this is not an INTJ reflection, but clearly, clearly I wanted to state, say some things about that. Okay. Um, so the, so I'm looking to get to that level of acceptance with the social eight part of me. And I would like to say that on most days I have it, but I think I'm not making I think I have some decisions. I need to make some better decisions about being a social aid. And I I, I keep wanting to go back to the Myers-Briggs because I'm like, well, what allows me to be so settled with the INTJ? Well, the INTJ is about how I think. It's how I process information, how I perceive, how I'm going to plan. So it's really an internal map. And it does overlap a little bit into the social world, like how I'm going to interact with people when they are around me or not. But it's really about my cognition how I think. Now that thinking oftentimes, not always, but that thinking oftentimes translate into behaviors. But, but it's a thinking map. The Myers-Briggs is a thinking map. It is not a behavioral map. All right. The Enneagram is what I call a social emotional map. And I'm still wrestling with that. Sometimes I just want to call it an emotional map. I really do. Um, but I don't think it's those emotions are standalone emotions. Those emotions are in context to the social world. And so I did the episode on this um, in season two, like somewhere at the beginning of 2021. I don't know. I think I did it a couple of times where I just talked about Social emotional, the social emotional part of us. We have the cognitive part and the social emotional part and then the spiritual part, right? What did I say at the start of this reflection? We're complex. We're multidimensional. So those maps are not speaking to all parts of those. I think the one that gets to it the most is the Enneagram. And I think where we fall short with the Enneagram is that we situate ourselves in one of those um, clusters. So in the Enneagram, for those of you who aren't Enneagram people, I'm just, a, and I don't do the teaching, you know, I don't teach the Myers-Briggs, I don't teach the Enneagram, but I want to make this point, and you're listening to me, I want to make sure you hear me. I mean, I want to make sure I make this point as best as I can. The Enneagram has nine types. Each of those nine numbers are clustered around three core emotions. And... um And that's that. But the Enneagram also is clustered around not just the three emotions, but three intelligence centers. Which I really like because it, it, because the body has a, a has intelligent, has knowing to it. That's the intuitive us. Those of us who are intuitive. Oh, I feel like this feels good. Those of us who are intuitive 
understands the body is a source of knowing. Because that body is, the body is going to tell you something when the head, like, I, like all of the, all of the logic here is not, I don't know how I know what I know because there's no logic. There's no data given very clarity about how I know this thing. Now, at the end of the day, it's all probably coming from the same source. The data is probably there and the different intelligence centers pick them up. So anyway, you have the heart, the head and the body. Now, apparently there's research. I don't know. There's research that says that there are neurons attached to these centers, that they really are three thinking centers. Okay. But I'm what I'm kind of leaning towards that core emotion drives how you think. I would love to have a conversation and, and I probably will see this. This will pop up sooner rather than later where you have INTJ fives talking to INTJ eights talking to INTJ ones. Those are your primary INTJs with the Enneagram. Right. You can get any number, but um, so anyway, I'm not a that Enneagram that Enneagram helps me to attend to the emotional me. And because I'm an INTJ and my feelings are third. I don't have much usage for those emotions in terms of my problem solving and thinking because I'm an INTJ, I'm a thinker, right? Those emotions aren't how I, I don't use those emotions as I'm thinking in the world, but they're there. And what I say at the start of this reflection you can't confront something that you cannot name. You just can't. So then they become very sloppy. It's very sloppy, you know. And for me, it can be, um, I don't know, what's the word when something like it's interruptive, you know, like you're trying to go right and something is pulling you left. I don't know. But it, can, it can be not just distractive, but disruptive, I think. For to not know what those emotions are. Now, one of the things I love about the INTJ fives, as I understand it, those fives are not as situated. The the fives are more withdrawn from the world than than so INTJs are like the hit people, like we're not social. But INTJ fives are even less social than INTJ eights, at least. I would imagine INTJ ones. And so I envy that. <laughs> like, like I would love that. Like, you know what? Deuces up, I'm out. But that's just not me. I don't know if it's because I come from a, a big family. I don't know if it's because of my industry and my training. I don't know. But I am not as withdrawn from the world as how I've, how I've understood INTJ fives as an INTJ. Okay. So I don't have, I don't have. I don't think the Myers-Briggs helps me to understand what I contend with in the world with people when I have to be with people because I don't have the luxury of withdrawing. Maybe that's what it is. 
because of, I, I don't know, because of my occupation, I don't know. I don't have the luxury to withdraw. Now, as an educator, having the summers off, that's what I would do in the summertime. Have be in my, I hang out, but it was really a time for me to be introspective and be with myself. All my Christmas holidays, my spring breaks, those were times I was just like going inward, right? I got a chance to do that. But the major, the, the, the significant part of my orientation or my existence is in the world with people. And I need to understand my relationship to these people more than just simply saying, I'm an INTJ. That's not my jam. Like, yeah, it's not your jam. But what does it mean anyway? <laughs> you know. So the I the eight does that, and I want to do some reading. Let me just go ahead and 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 just read this. Um, at least start here. Sorry about that. The social eight is the counter type of the three eight subtypes. Each. Now, let me just pause. You guys know that, um, so each, so there are nine types. They're each clustered around three core emotions, three, uh, in thinking centers, if you will, intelligence centers. And then each center, each cluster, um, has a unique relationship with that core emotion. So I, as an eight, am in the anger cluster or the gut, the body cluster. Now, I can also test as a one. Both of those numbers are about anger. Ones are like ones try to distance themselves from anger. Nines don't think that they're angry. And eights are like, yeah, it is what it is. <laughs> and so I'm an eight, although I'm an introverted eight and I'm a thinking eight. So I don't look like, and I'm an intuitive eight. So I don't look like a sensor eight. I don't look like an extroverted eight. And I do not look like a feeler eight. And that. And I think, I think that's why I'm social as a subtype, as a, so each number, each number in the cluster has a relationship with the emotion and then each number, so each number in the cluster has a different relationship with the emotion and then each individual number has three variants, three subtypes, three type, three, three options. You could be a social, so I'm an eight, I could be a social Eight, I could be a self-preservation eight, or I could be a sexual eight. I believe I'm a social eight with a very, very, very strong appetite for self. Uh, a very, very strong and maturing appetite for self-preservation. So, okay, so let me go back to reading. The social eight is the countertype of the three eight types. Oh, I know what I was going to say. That, I'm sorry. So each within those three variant, the variances, the three types within the single number, one of those, one of those are, would be called the, the, the counter type. It doesn't look like the other number. It doesn't look like the other eight, uh, number, uh, the other subtypes. So as a social eight, I'm the counter type. I don't look like an eight typically until you, you know, I want to say until you drill down, right? But on the surface, I don't look like a, I don't, I don't have a lot of the characteristics of your typical eight. So 
the and I love that as a theory. The only thing that throws me off is the concept of the social and how I've made peace with that is not feeling social. It is not feeling relational social. For me, social means a collective and understanding, having a deep insight into the social world, right? You guys know, I went to look at how many times I did an episode with the word social in it. And I think it's 12. And then I looked up how many times I did an episode with INTJ in the title. And I think it's 15. But I'm always talking about the social. Always. Whether I put it in in the title or not. And that's why I did that episode called The Sale. Please check that out. Because I have a very deep understanding of how the social world plays out, how it interacts, how the different components interact with each other, how the social impacts the individual. It's like second nature for me. I do believe some of that knowledge about the social world comes from my academic training, but I believe I went to get that academic training because I had a way of seeing the world that I didn't have a vocabulary for, that I didn't have an understanding for. And that's why I chose, you know, I think that's why I went into the, went into, I think that's why I ended up making my way to the the, the academic studying that I had done and the readings that I've done. So I'm a social aid. I'm a counter type eight. That means I don't look like your typical eight. Now let me go back to reading. I'm going to start over. The social aid is the counter type of the three eight subtypes. Social aids represent a contradiction. The eight archetype rebels against social norms, but the social aid is also oriented towards protection and loyalty. They express lust and aggression in the service of life and other people. That's really, and I can't tell you how many times I've read that paragraph, but just reading that out loud to you, it hit me in a very unique way. So one of the things that I challenge myself with that whole eight framing is that I can have an aggressive nature but I don't walk in that aggression in my thinking. I'm not walking around aggressive. Well, that's okay. Wait a minute. That gets a little bit country. Um, I can contest that. How do I, I don't know how to, that's why this is a very good framing for me because on the surface, it looks like I'm not walking around with that aggression. It really, I don't have the need to do that. It takes nothing for it to be poked, though. So, what they say about the self-preservation eight. The self-preservation... Oh, let me, let me read. Let me keep reading. The, um, excuse me. This person is social antisocial. Talking about the social eight. This person is social antisocial. In contrast to self-preservation eights, social eights are more loyal, more overtly friendly, and less aggressive. They are helpful eights, people who are nurturing, protective, and concerned with the injustice that happened to people. Yet they also display an antisocial aspect with regard to the rules of society. I'm going to tell you, this is a very complicated thing for me to really process 
as an INTJ. I will say that. Like, I'm not struggling with being the, the counter type to the eight. Like, I love, love, love this description. It explains so much about me. But I am struggling with reconciling that with the mind TJ self. Because I don't like that description of in service of other people because that sounds kind of in an INFJ, right? My relationship and service to people is not one-on-one. And it's not relational. It is structural. Let me explain it with the job that I that just ended today. <laughs> Boy, there's a lot to there's gonna be a lot to talk about when I when I come back to you in August. But the job that I had, it was a three directorship team. One was a, the the lead director, and then the two assistant directors. And oh my god, I can't. I'm gonna. I'm going to process that too, but I want to make sure I've had some, some distance to it so I can be respectful of what that means. Um, what I want to be, I want to be respectful. See, that's when I say words like that. That's very one-ish. Um, but anyway, so I come into the organization. And the organization is premised on equity work. At least that's why I was brought in to do the equity work. And I'm like, oh, my God. I can actually, oh, my God. The social scientist in me and the educator, I can actually talk about these issues. So we all know what white supremacy means. You guys talk about white supremacy? You actually use that word out loud? Oh my gosh, you talk about racism, you talk about sexism, you know, you're talking about power. I don't work in, I've not worked in organizations where everybody understands these concepts, right? Now, my relationship to these concepts are either either it's personal, like I'm in a personal conversation and somebody says, that person is a sexist, right? That person is a homophobe or whatever, right? That's what we do on on a personal, private level. Or it's academic. I'm reading an article. I'm reading some research about, you know, racism or sexism or, you know, ableism, right? So my relationship to these concepts have either been personal or academic. They've never been organizational unless I was the person. It was my organization that I created. And even when I created my organization, I did not use those words. Because I don't come from a world my age because of the generation I belong to. I didn't come up in a world where you talked openly about these isms. I think this is happening now because of the millennial generation and the generation Y and Z. And I'm not saying that in a negative way. I'm just saying those younger generations have brought these conversations to the forefront because more than likely it is it was academic and then it got moved into these personal spaces and they brought them into the workspace. Fine. I love it. So I come into a job. I'm like, oh, organization. I'm like, oh my God, they're using these words. This is a, this is awesome. But then I learned very quickly. It was a vocabulary. It was, it was, um, it was emotional. That these words were just about 
well, most of the time I felt like it was just vocabulary because, okay, we can talk about the words. And then I would say it's judgment, is emotional because we can judge one another. Like there was a lot of judging of coworkers based on these words, right? A lot of judging, a lot of indictment, a lot of crying, a lot of talk of harm. Oh my God. And harm is a word. It's a real word. And it's a word I've used. I've never seen that word used this much. Okay. Now I'm telling you the reason why I don't mean to come across as insensitive. God knows I don't mean to come across as insensitive. But as an INTJ, I'm not, that was not fun for me to be in an environment and we're talking about, first of all, we're just talking about the words of it. Cause that, that feels more INTP, right? That's TI. I don't need a voc. I don't live my life on vocabulary. Um, what are we gonna do with this? And I said, "What we gonna do?" That's my, that's my native dial register or whatever, um, um, language, whatever you know. Anyway, um, <laughs> but that's how that's that's how I felt. Like, what are we gonna do with this? Like, we're gonna just talk about it. What are we gonna do? And then. And then it wasn't that I discredited anybody's harm. I didn't discredit anybody's feelings on it. But what I was saying is, let's do something about it. And for me, doing something was about, let's put in a policy. Let's put in a process. Let's put in some structures. And I kept saying, I'm, let's make this. And so then we had, um, <laughs> then we had some changes that we we're going to make. And I didn't use the word in the changes. Whatever I proposed, I didn't use the word equity. And so then it was all people over arms. Where's the equity? Well, the equity is in the structure. Because in the structure, the structure is going to, will hold people accountable. So there's accountability in these structures. There's clarity. There's equality in this because it's all being spelled out and structured. But because I didn't use the word, <laughs> People couldn't originally see that. They couldn't see, they could only see what equity looks like when it's a vocabulary activity or when it's charged with emotion. But when that equity was about structures, it didn't translate in this organization well. Okay, we're done with that organization. That's fine. And they're done with me. I'm pretty sure they're happy to be done with me. But that was, that was a consistent battle. That's me. That's I brought that up as an example to explain who I am as a social eight. So me being social isn't about the one-to-one, which is really sexual. It's not, it is about the group. Now it gets tricky though, because that FE extroverted feeling, I'm going to be jumping back and forth between two maps, y'all, the Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram. It's just because I have this need for the alignment of those two. But that FE in the group is very different from me as a TE in the group. See that FE, now if I, you FE user, you hear me and you think I'm wrong, please, excuse me, please come back and correct me. <laughs> you know, I, I'm here for it. But this is from my experience and from my readings. <laughs> That FE is concerned with group. You, 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 um, 
a harmony union, like like a un, un, unifying unification. And I kind of want to say solidarity, but the reason why I don't want to say solidarity is because that word is also associated with the eight. And I don't want to get it confused. But making sure that the group is um, aligned, it's it's all aligned. But check this out. Oh, this is what, this is the problem I have with, this is my problem with FE. If you are an FE user, I apologize, but this is what I can't stand, okay? That FE, there are two things that the FE, I think, in my opinion, the FE is doing. Number one, making sure that we're, if that group is in alignment, but it comes across as a feeling like it's all about, I'm just checking in, I want to make sure you're good. You know, it, 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 that's, that's how it, that's the face of it. That is all about checking in to make sure someone else is feeling good. But the hidden agenda is I want to make sure you are doing what the group needs you to do. But I'm going to get you to do what the group needs you to do or what we should do by catering to your emotions. God dang it. And that I cannot stand. So whereas the TE is going to be like, this is what we're doing. It's more on the front end. That FE, you're not going to see that. You won't understand that that FE is trying to move you. And maybe it's just for me. Maybe that's something I have to work on. Maybe other types won't experience that FE that way. But because that person doesn't come up front and say, this is what the agenda is. This is what their position is. And I'm, I'm, I'm wired for that type of directness. And then you start coming to me. I think my FI thinks, oh, this is about, oh, you, you, oh, you care about me as an individual. Oh, that's nice. Oh, and nope, that ain't got crap to do with me as an individual. That's got everything to do with how I'm going to function in this group. Basically, this unstated agenda, this hidden agenda. And no, mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. I don't like it. Mm-mm. So anyway. So, um, why was I saying that? So that's what the, that's the group orientation with the FE. That's not my group orientation. When I think about the group, I'm not interested in moving that group in any particular direction. Unless, unless I have an assignment. And I do think that's important to say that because if I think as a TE Dom, I would be more interested in constantly moving that group. I don't have to move that group. I can sit in that group and observe it and be an, just be an observer as an NI Dom. I really can. But if you, if I'm going to take action, my action is If I'm charged as the leader, I will move the group. If I'm not charged as the leader, more than likely, I'm going to do, I'm going to function as an undeclared leader. And that's where I'm going to be protective. 
I'm going to be protective. What's the other word that they use? Uh, hold on. Okay. So it says nurturing and concerned with injustice. I'm not doing that in the group. I will nurture you if I'm responsible for you as the leader of the group. I will do that. Now, there's another small part of me that will nurture you if I feel that I am, for whatever reason, I have to process this at some other point. If I feel that I am superior to you and I feel pretty elitist to say out loud, feels a little gross, but that's the truth. If there's something in me that makes me think that I'm superior structurally, not because I'm superior human, but like maybe I have more knowledge than you. Maybe I have more power or jurisdiction in the world than you, that I'm going to use that power to protect and take care of you. But my nurturing as the young lady, the my my mother called her my problem child in the organization, I, I wasn't nurturing enough for her. And the way my nurturing looks isn't like, it's not F-E nurturing. Well, I don't want to, but it's not even F-I nurturing. It's still, it's, it's about learning. It's like growing, like helping someone to grow or to, or to fight for them, either to help them to grow, help, okay, helping them to grow, helping them to move, or just protecting them altogether. That's my, that's the way I'm going to show up in that group. Otherwise, I'm just going to be quiet. I don't know another way. That's interesting. That's really, really interesting. I'm going to have to pay attention to myself in other, in uh, cross context. So I try to, I think over the last, Five years, really, I've tried to be, when I'm in a group, I try to relate in the group, right? So we're talking, people are talking, and I'm trying to talk with you, right? Oh, this is really interesting. Wow, it's so interesting. When I get on this podcast and I start trying to process that, because I just feel like I get to a new level of thinking or questioning, Um because I just am curious about when I'm in groups and what defines the group, right? What kind of group is it? If it's just a collection of people, like what, what am I doing there? If I'm just, and I've learned, I call it shoot the breeze or excuse my language, shoot the shit, right? I'm like, I'm just going to shoot the breeze with these people. I'm not going to do it for a long time, but I'm here. Let I'm, and I'm able to do that. That's my growth point. But I wasn't always like that. I would just, withdraw. I wouldn't even go around. I just wouldn't go around at all. So I think, I don't know, this is something I want to come back to. But anyway, the social, anti-social me is very much, I have the ability to, first of all, I can relate to you. I can talk with you now. It could be a little social. Um, when I was in my twenties and all the, 
from high school all the way through, I would say, my late 20s, people said, she's mean. I was, that was, that was the character that was assigned to me, the trait. They said I was mean. People would come up to me from high school and say, you were just so mean in high school. I didn't know if you liked me or you didn't. or my other friends were like, you don't like anybody. My friends were like, you don't like anybody. It's a wonder that you like us. <laughs> so that's just what, I, what it was. I, I didn't care for people. And then as I started falling in love with myself and appreciating myself, I was just, it just changed my, my orientation to other people changed a little bit. Like, and it wasn't because I fell in It was, I think it was falling in love with the self. Like, Hey, I want to be more of me. Right. And if I get to fall in love with myself more, I get to experience more of me when I'm interacting with people. I know it sounds very um, self-absorbed and um, you know, uh, I'm going to talk when I come back in uh, next season. Cause you know, now that I'm interested in this studying what's called solo poly and there's a, you know, these, there are these three concepts that I'm interested in exploring together. Solely solo polyamory. You have to go listen to the other episode. What that means. I'm not going to explain it now. But solo polyamory, narcissism, and attachment theory, right? And all three of those speak to how one connects to relationally or in a social way, connects to other people, right? In different ways. And so... um a lot of times, because we are, especially as women, we are a society that expects us to relate socially, that those of us who don't relate socially, we get pathologized, right? Even if you don't get pathologized as a narcissist, you might, somebody might say, well, you have a void, you have a, an avoidant attachment style, which that's still a pathology. Might say you're a loner, you're nerd, you know what I mean? You're awkward, you're shy. All of that, all of those concepts, privilege, connecting, all of those concepts says, really underneath all of that, what it's saying is, you really should be connecting with people. That's what you should be doing. And if you are not connecting with people, something's wrong. Those those concepts, well, solo poly does. But those other concepts, and this is what I'm, why I'm interested in learning more about solo, solo polyamory. Because solo polyamory is really about having a healthy relationship with yourself and privileging it. There's nothing wrong with it. And it doesn't, and it, and for me, it doesn't mean that I'm not social. It means that I have a healthy relationship with myself as my primary relationship. Again, check out that episode just to learn more. Um, I think I'm getting ready to try to start closing. But as I'm interacting in these groups, in these spaces where there's a, there are a group of people, that doesn't necessarily make it the group. But let's say that group is a classroom or a school or a district. Those are the, those are the groups, social groups I am 
most familiar with because that's what I do for a living. Or let's say the group is a, is family, right? Or I used to do Girl Scouts or church, right? Anytime you have a collective, a collective group or a collection of people coming together formed by some type of social agenda, that is where you see the social aid in me. I'm very much in tune to that social agenda. I'm very much in tune to how that social agenda brings those people together. And if I am a member of that group, I am going to be more social than antisocial. There it is. I finally got to where I, I was like, I'm, I'm struggling. I'm trying to go somewhere. I don't know where I'm going. Okay. That's what it is. If I'm not a part of that group where I select, like I, let's just, let's start. Cause I think there are three layers here. Let's first of all, talk about if I'm not a part of your group. Okay. I don't care. <laughs> I really don't care. Right. And, and I'm more aligned to my own agenda, my own agenda, my own beliefs. It's very clear the antisocial part of me. Very clear. Now, let's say I'm a part of your group by birth. Like when I was born into my family, I didn't choose the family. So I'm a part of the group. I didn't choose that. I didn't select that group. I have a sense of membership and a sense of loyalty because I'm a part of that group, the, the larger group. However, I do not subscribe to most social norms. So when that group brings in norms that I don't subscribe to, that's when they'll see me as social, antisocial. Because I'm in the group. I'm going to be protective of that group if I'm responsible for that group, even if I'm not responsible. I'm going to have a loyalty to it. That's all of my family stuff. Even my industry. Even my industry, I have a social, antisocial relationship with my industry. I'm a member of it. I don't want to leave it. But boy, oh boy, do I not subscribe to a lot of the norms. And I'm trying to push back on those norms. And then the third layer or the third possibility is um, if I'm in a group that I created, and this is really where, this is a really good place to start really ending. The third level is if I'm in a group that I created, because if I created that group, that group is going to be grounded in or based on an agenda that I'm, I believe in with the norms that I believe in, right? And that is really where you see me, the, the most loyal and the most fiercely, fiercely protective of that group. So that, I, I think that's new learning for me to see those three levels of my orientation for the group, especially as an INTJ that um, I'm interested in solving problems. 
I'm interested in movement. And I often think movement, I don't think all INTJs have to move people. But they they are going to move something. They're going to put order to their environment. If it ha- I don't know how I don't know how an INTJ five sees that with people. Again, I would think an INTJ five would withdraw before the he or she tries to get movement to the group. Now, what could happen with an INTJ five is that that uh, person would try to do one on one movement. And I had I've I've had some INTJ fives try to move me one on one, and it, no baby, no. <laughs> I don't think that an INTJ5 would have an appetite to move the group the way I do as an INTJ8. I'm very much interested in, like, like I just said, group problem solving, group movement, putting structures in place. That's my jam. But it's for the collective that's bound together by a particular, like I said, agenda, set of values. Now, if I'm in, like, I think about why churches have been very difficult. I, I think about when I was doing church, I was very social, anti-social in those church. Like there was a, I was, I was proud to be a member, but that membership for me or that sense of pride, if you will, was only going to go so deep. Because if there were social norms that I did not agree with, I am going to reject those norms. And I enjoy it. This is the conflict that I've been having with my sister and her friends. My sister, and I'm learning this more about her, she subscribes to a lot of the norms and values I reject. And the reason why I'm just now learning them is because they don't come up in my mind. Now, but but maybe... And I have to ask her this one day. Maybe they have come up for her and she's just pushed it to the side, right? And I feel bad if she's been around me and has felt in violation because I wasn't subscribing to the norms and and the values that she subscribed to. Because I do not subscribe to your traditional mainstream values and norms. I just do not subscribe to those. And not only do I not subscribe to them, I enjoy interrupting those. I enjoy disrupting them. It's, it's, it is, it is almost, or it is almost, or uh, what's the word? Orgasmic? Am I saying that right? Or, orgas, anyway, it's almost like a high, if you will, to, and to do it with subtlety is even best, better. Like, and that's the other reason why I don't think like I'm a typical eight because, you know, eights are big and lustful and all of that. And I am, but not when it comes to people. I'm just, but I am when it comes to structures, systems, and collections and concepts. And so I love when I'm interrupting a, so some social norms and I just do it fierce. I, I'm saying that word a lot. How about we play a drinking game? Take a shot every time I say the word fierce. Because apparently that's going to be the word that I've been using in in this episode. But it's pretty. I'm pretty bold and steadfast. Not loud. But pretty steadfast. Pretty steadfast. Pretty resolved. Intense. No. Unyielding. No. 
And what has what happens in my sister's world is that my sister also is attracted to big people. We've already I've talked to you about that. Well, those big people. Now I'm not coming across as demonstrative. People big. I'm not a people big person. I'm a conceptually big person. I'm a structurally big person, which is why structural security and structural my structural well being. It's and this is something I was I wanted to talk to you guys about this, but I just don't have the time. But I one of the conflicts that I'm really confronting is my relationship to. You guys have heard me really struggling with employment versus business. That has been a theme for about two years, and it's been constant. It's on repeat, and I'm pretty sure. I don't know if I would say if I go back over time, if it will look like I contradicted myself. I don't think it's a contradiction, but like a forever ending loop. Like, dang, woman, you said you resolved this a thousand times. Yet here you are still talking about this. And I think it's because of the structural me. The eight part of me that's structural wants that big and solid and secure. And it's going to take some time to get to that by doing business. The business me won't, won't, it's going to take time to build it. Now I talked to my business coach today because I have a business coach we met for the fourth time today. And what she said is, she said, yes, yeah, she said, she understood it. She said, but you may never get to that place if you don't make the sacrifice. You might have to sacrifice that structural part of you. To get to that, to get to a place where you're really structurally solid in a way that aligns with the other parts of you. And I do understand that. But I want to be really honest with you all. I don't want to have to take a hit structurally because I just came out of a hit. It'd be one thing. I already took a hit. I don't want to take another hit. I just don't. And so... um so that's the thing. So I'm still in a place where I really want to do business and employment. I want to do two. I want to do those side by side. The growth part of me is that I'm going to, um, because I'm not going to be spending so much time building some structural foundations that I've been doing over the past two years, that energy will be able to go to my business. So I can truly be more bivocational moving forward than I've been in the last. I've been talking about being bivocational, but I've been taking, so I've been working an employment job. And then on the side, I've been, like I said, building, just taking, building more security and putting systems together, like working on my credit score, working on my savings, um, creating systems for, um, for bigger projects. And I've been working on projects, Right. But I haven't been used taking that energy working on business. And so now we're here, right? And at the end of season four, which is June 30th of 2022, a year ago from today, if you listen to that episode, you will hear me talking about outgrowth. The name of the episode is called Outgrowth. I outgrew level one. I have a piece of paper on my wall in my room. I'm a visual person. I have to... I have, I have a vision. I have like my version of a vision board all around my house. Things that I aspire to. They're on pieces of paper, taped up around the wall, so I can be constantly reminded of where I'm going, what what my commitments are. Um, 
And on this piece of paper, there are three levels. And so in the in that episode from a year ago, I talk about I, I've outgrown level one and now I'm going into level two. And so when I went to listen to that, it was hard to listen to it because a year later, I'm still at that same place. Well, I'm solidly, I'm more in level two. Uh, I won't say solidly into level two, but last year I was just leaving level one. I'm I'm in level two. I'm in, I'm in level two, but there are a couple of things I still need to do. There are some places that I'm actually starting to look at level three. So there's been movement, but there's not going to be the ultimate movement until I have the lifestyle that I want. That is not just work, right? And this is the, this is the, this is the, this is the place I'm spiraling in. I'm spinning in. Because I do not want lifestyle. My lifestyle includes structural security and like structural, intense structural security. I have zero desire to go backwards in that area. So I'm going to have to figure out another way to get to the lifestyle I want and to get those structural components. Now, do I think it's something I can't solve? No, I don't. I think it's something I can solve, but now I have to solve it. Right now, now that's in front of me as a problem to solve. Whereas a year ago, I was focusing on something else. A year ago, I was trying to like come to terms with my leadership, my, my orientation to executive leadership. I, a year ago, I was trying to come to terms with the fact that I was prioritizing bundles of toilet paper. Like that was a big deal. That structural security was a big deal to me. And I was not really able to see it because I have lived so much of my adult life in the social part of me in terms of social building, social protection, social movement. And to fall back and I started having these individual uh, desires around structural security. Last year at this time, I was just starting to confront that. Now I have. It's been that's movement in a year. I'm fine. But how I'm choosing, here it is, how I'm choosing to do that structural security is through employment. To do it through my business means I'm going to have to take a hit and I don't want to. But that's where we are today, June 30th of 2023, and we will see. We will see. And that does go to this place of responsible self-acceptance. That for me, I want that, that security structurally. And I want to, and I want to be able to use my INTJ self to improve the social world. I want to, that's my commitment to the social is through my INTJ self. Now, that was, they may feel a little bit disjointed from what I was saying, but I needed to make that declaration because I have been feeling like just a little bit like um, on one hand, I feel really secure and very resolved and at peace with the fact that there's this structural part of me. I'm not questioning that anymore, but I think what I'm having a hard time is taking that structural me and putting it side by side to the social me. I'm really struggling with that. 
And so I think the solution is to embrace me as two things, social, structural, mm-mm. Uh, what it was, social, antisocial, and social self-preservation, right? That's it. And I think same in terms of the Enneagram, the subtitles, I'm social, self-preservation. That's saying social, antisocial, and the fact that um, I want to use my INTJ skills and my gifts to help the, to help the collectives in which I feel I'm a member so obviously, race is one, right? The black community, um, that's one. Um, black women, <laughs> that's another. Um, I have a small part of me that wants to help women in general, but there is some conflict around race that I have learned about um, the feminist movement, the white feminist movement, and how white women are not really confronting the racial dimensions of their fight. So when you have white women who are feminists, not all white women, but white women who are feminists and they are against the patriarchy. I'm talking about those people. Those are the, those are women I identify with. So I do really, you know, I'm, I have kinship. When I meet a white woman who's a feminist, there's kinship there because I'm a feminist. But most white women are not confronting the dimensions of race in patriarchy and their relationship to the patriarchy is different from my relationship to patriarchy as a black woman. All of that is race. Anyway, uh, that was a rabbit hole, but you know, I would say that because there is a, there's a part of me that will fight for women's rights, regardless of your black, Latina, Asian, white, indigenous. It's just, girl power, right? And then um, there is this growing part of me that wants to fight for sexual minorities, um, people who don't um, have a, I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but have a sexual lifestyle that is aligned to the mainstream, like the majority, the dominant group, the dominant group does sex this way. And because the dominant group does sex this way, everybody should do sex this way. That's ridiculous, right? But that's what has happened. That's what happens when you have dominant groups and subgroups. That dominant group gets privileged and the subgroups get marginalized, pathologized, problematized. Um, so I think about... Uh, I have an affinity to educators, right? I'm trying to, I want to be a part of moving that industry forward. Um, I think in the city I live in, right? And so I think about all of the spaces that I am a member of, social member, uh, my relationship to those collectives is about advancing it, using my INTJ giftedness for being protective to that collective, being loyal to that group, co- collective, all of the things that you would say about the social eight. Except when that collective subscribes to a set of norms, a set of values, scripts, agenda that is dominant, marginalizing, 
I'm going to, to interrupt that and not just unplug as a five. I'm not going to just unplug from it as five. There are times I do unplug. But when I'm in my eighth self, I'm confronting that and I do it with deliciousness, if you will. And so that's just a new part of me that, although I'm talking about it with a level of clarity, it's just a new part of understanding that. And then I'm going to say this and I will close. Um, I feel that this idea of solo polyamory, which is what I talked about in the previous episode, is really going to be my framework for moving forward as a social antisocial. Because solo polyamory is is interrupting how we do relationships. Now, most people look at polyamory and says, well, it's disrupting how you do sex, right? You can have, and that's fine. I don't want to talk about that. That's, you have to listen to the previous episode. Like that's, that's a whole separate conversation. That's a difficult conversation for me because I don't even, that's just not an identity that I have. That's not a primary identity. Having a sexual identity just isn't me, right? So you have to go listen to that episode. So deeply personal, but I think it's relevant. That's the only reason why I'm saying it. But I do have an identity of loving. Like I do love, right? And I just don't want to, my love is not limited to sex. It's not even limited to romance. I love platonically. I love familiarly. I love occupationally. And so why should those loves be minimized? Because the mainstream script says in our society, we privilege romantic love. Romantic love based on sex. And we put everything into that in a, some kind of hierarchy. That one is privileged. That's that's not the script I follow. That's just not a script I follow. So I think that that so the poly solo polyamory allows me to have multiple relationships that are equal to each other. They're not non hierarchical, and it allows me to say, "Hey, my friendship relationships are just as important as a romantic relationship. That's important to me." But that's also disruptive. That's also, that's a very anti-social thing because most social structures are based on even the job. They want to know, will you, why don't you have kids? Why aren't you in a relationship? Why aren't you talking about it? Why aren't you talking about your relationship? Why are you, why aren't you talking about wanting to be in a relationship? So even if I were not in a relationship as single, they would, that's why I don't even like the term single because single denotes I want to be in a relationship. I don't want to be in that a relationship that I was in like before. What I want to do is have multiple relationships that I value. Multiple loving relationships. Multiple platonic loving relationships. Multiple familial love loving relationships. And yes, we can throw romance in there. And I have to come back and talk about my thinking. Can one person like do it romantically like. What if, if, if I'm now going to, uh, give, um, if I'm going to value multiple 
relationships, non-sexual, non-romantic relationships, if I'm going to value those as meaningful, then what am I going to need a romantic relationship for? Do you guys understand what I'm saying? If I can get fulfillment out of a non-romantic relationship, if I can get deep fulfillment in these non-romantic relationships, what is the need for a romantic relationship? And if there is a need for a romantic relationship, does it have to be just one? I I can't think of an example right now because it's not me. <laughs> but I, I I suspect that if I change my paradigm about, if I allow myself to really embrace a shift in my paradigm, which I believe speaks to my core, I just haven't really accepted that part of me. I think it's going to open up of what it means for me to be a romantic individual. Because romance is so not a significant part of my life or orientation. And is it because it is it not because of my orientation because I don't value romance? Or is it not a part of my orientation because I've only been given one model map script for romance? You know what I'm saying? I don't know. I'm going to come back and talk more about this next season. So I think this is all about me being social, being a part of a group, being a part of a collective, but also resisting mainstream norms and scripts that creates hierarchies and create superiority and subordinacy. In fact, that being subordinate, making a word up, I reject that wholeheartedly, full stop, completely. And I think that there are some new discoveries. And my prayer is that this time next year, I will be able to say that I have integrated all of that, that antisocial, that social antisocial part of me in all facets of my career, my relationships. I've already done it spiritually. See, I think that was the first breakthrough that I had. My social, anti-social relationship with the Christian faith. I talked about that in that episode from a year ago. I've already done that spiritual work. I'm, I'm almost done with the, the work anti-social part of me. The only thing I'm struggling with is the, the structural stuff. And I think I still want to be, oh, I know what it is. I still want to be socially connected to my industry. So once I can find a way to be socially connected to my industry and still be independent in my business, then we're fine. I think we're fine. But I think, I think I'm holding on to that employment in the sense of being bivocational for two reasons. Number one, it gives me the fastest route to money for my structural security. And then it gives me the connection to the social, to the industry, the social part of my industry. But both of those can be resolved. I clearly know that because now I've named it. And because I've named it, I can confront it, confront it. And then the third thing that is very fresh for me is this relational me. Because I never had a map for it. And solo polyamory is the map. I, I, 
It has to be because I wouldn't have talked about this out loud. I don't talk about my relationship status. I don't talk about sex. I don't talk about that in this project. Mainly because I never had the right map for it. I never had the right label. Other people give me labels. They look at my life. They don't see certain things. They see certain things and they say, oh, she's this. I can't control what the label you give me, but I can control the identity that I hold. And solo polyamory feels like an identity. I'm not going to lock it in yet because I need some more studying. I need to spend some time in it. But I right now am. I feel like this is going to be the game changer I need so I can stop spinning. I keep spinning. And I just think all of this, all of this is about me embracing the social, antisocial me. I don't feel like this reflection is complete. But just like I spent years really digging into the INTJ me and even time into the Enneagram, I think I need to go spend more time as a social eight. And I think solo polyamory is going to be a really, really good map, a good map for me to do to do that, a roadmap for me to do that. You guys, if this reflection has had any value for you, please give it a heart. If this conversation, oh my gosh, about the social, I've been here though. I've been talking about the sale, show sale, the rubber band. I have, I have needed to talk about the social. And I, I don't think that many of you who come to this project are into the social. You know, you don't jam with me in this social space. You probably jamming with me in the home personality theory. And there are two things I want to say, and I'm going to move forward in my other life. I will not do anything anymore without acknowledging personality theory. Personality theory is almost like a religion for me. I won't have conversations personally. I won't do work without acknowledging it. Personality theory is a core staple. And another core staple is understanding the social world. And so those of you who are coming to me through the personality theory, I'm going to ask you to develop an appetite for the social world. Uh, uh, develop that appetite otherwise I'm going to have to go and find and I think this is the struggle like I know that there's a community of people who into Myers-Briggs and I know there's a community of people who understand who understand the social world and I'm trying to build a community of people who embrace both of those the personality theory and social theory that's and maybe I need to maybe I need to name that maybe I need to articulate that a little better might need to write that up. But anyway, we will see. But if any of this conversation about being social and antisocial, about being a part of collectives, um, about how do you, how, how are you a social insulin introvert, right? How do those two match up? Um, if any of this connects to the conversation, and then I say solo polyamory, I did kind of talk about that again. But anticipate that to be, that's going to be on repeat. So just be prepared for that. But if any of that relates to a conversation you've had in the world, please take this link and share it with those participants. If my moving about has caused some randomness in you, I'd love to hear it. You can find me on my website at yourandidom.wordpress.com on Twitter, yourandidom1, Facebook, and YouTube, yourandidom. Let me give you your assignment. Before I give you your assignment, let me just say, because um, I didn't really emphasize this, this is the last episode of season six. I am going to be silent for the month of July. Uh, I know you're, you're seeing this on July 1st, but it's really still June. It is uh, 11 o'clock on a, on, a, on a Friday night, June 30th, 2023. And I'm not going to do any recordings on the podcast for a month. 
I might do something with YouTube, but um, I just usually take two months off in, I take a month off in January, a month off in July, just to really spend time uh, meditating on the project, meditating on, on life. And so I will be silent for the month of July. So one of the things I want to ask you to do is um, obviously go back and listen to episodes that you've missed. And, and I'd be just go and try out some episodes, even if you think that the title doesn't speak to you or the description, give it a shot. Cause oftentimes you get into those reflections. I get into it and there's something in there that is really, um, meaty and helpful. And so go and listen to some uh, episodes and just kind of spend time with some of the ones that, that, that didn't really resonate with you. Okay. So that's not your assignment, but that is an assignment, right? That's not the assignment, but I want to tell you that I'm not going to be around for a month. Take this time to go listen to some of those episodes that didn't really speak to you before and I'll stay connected with the project and, or not, or not do what you need to do for you, boo. (laughs) And so let me uh, give you an assignment. Hold on. I'm going to try I'm going to think of one, one second. The question is kind of like two parts, but it's the same question asked in different ways. One way to ask this question is, what is your spiral like, or your spin? What is it that you keep talking about doing and growing and fixing? And you keep doing it and you don't realize you're doing it. But when you, when you pause and you look back on time, you're like, damn, I've been saying this for a while. What is that thing that you have been talking about doing for a while and you still haven't done it and then the second question is what barriers what what are your barriers and I don't think you're going to be able to answer the barrier question until you really confront the spiral part you've got to find something in your life where you spiral or you're spinning and you're staying in one spot that tells you that there's a barrier that's the only way you're going to know that there's a barrier and then once you identify that space of spiral or spin really question what the barrier is. What is the barrier? I'm not even going to ask you what are you going to do about it. Just name the barrier. Um, because it's the thing about growth, right? We talk about growth and then we have these places where we, we talk about it and we think talk and it's like talking about it, kind of like the job. Talking about equity is equity. No, it's not, baby. That's not it. And you got to put some teeth to that. You got to put some structures and systems to it. And, and, uh, it might be hard for me. It is hard. The the relationship piece is very hard for me. The relationship piece. And I'm now learning about this structural social part of me. And those are two places where I've been spiraling. And now this reflection has helped me to better understand why. And so I hope you take this opportunity to, to kind of identify a, like a very hidden part of your uh, growth, uh, work that you need to do. So I don't know if that makes sense, but hopefully you guys, it has, uh, I really hope that you, um, find a way to connect with me while I'm on, I'm silent. I'm not going to record, but I'm still going to be around. You can find me on Twitter. You're in, uh, you're in IDOM one. You can find me on YouTube. You're in IDOM. And I'm even on Facebook as you're in IDOM. I don't get to Facebook often, but if I got an indicator, I will come to you. Okay. So, um, some of you, thank you for the person who just reached out to me. Um, 
ironically, he brought up sex. And when you first brought up sex, I was like, oh, my God. And then, because I don't talk about it. And then I do two episodes where I talk about sex. Imagine that. (laughs) So anyway, you guys, it's been a pleasure hanging out with you until I come back in August. Be well. Bye.